Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching Podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. So last week we started in 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5, and we talked about how the coming of Christ and the day of the Lord are really the same thing. The wording, the coming of Christ, is more a hope for Christians that Jesus is coming back. The day of the Lord, although it's the same event, it more stresses God's judgment on unbelievers. The day of the Lord. So we saw last week that Jesus will come back literally, visibly, in the clouds. Those who have died first, who are still in the grave, they will go first. They will be resurrected with a new glorified body. And then we'll go second if we're alive at that time. We'll be caught up. And this is to be a great source of encouragement um, to be waiting for that, that day. Okay? So what we're going to do tonight, we may not get to Revelation, but hopefully we will. Next week we'll definitely spend time in Revelation. But what I want to do is I want to, I want to go to Jesus in Matthew 24. I want to go to Paul in 2 Thessalonians. And then I want to go to John in Revelation 19 and show you three major teachings on the second coming and show you how they are very similar. So let's first of all just open our Bibles to Matthew 24. And this is known as the Olivet Discourse because Jesus is sitting on the Mount of Olives. That's why it's called Olivet, the Mount of Olives, talking to his disciples. So Matthew 24... And I'm going to read the whole passage. I may skip over just a little bit, but I want, I want to draw your attention to some things. Um, I'm not going to spend a lot of time unpacking this passage of Scripture, but I, what I really want to show you from these passages of Scripture is the order of events. How Jesus says the order of events will go, how Paul says the order of events will go, and then kind of if we, we're not going to get to Revelation 20 tonight, but we'll get to Revelation 19 hopefully. So let's start in verse 3. Matthew 24, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Okay, what's the question? When are you coming back and what is the sign of your coming? Okay, and the end of the age. What's the sign? When? Jesus said to them, See that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my namesake. Kind of sounds like what we talked about Sunday morning. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. 
And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. Okay, what's the first thing that Jesus says there in verse 4? He says, see to it that no one leads you astray. There's going to be many false teachers, false prophets, false things happening that are going to lead many people astray. Now let's just stop. Has false teaching always been around? Yes. Okay, so this is signs gearing towards the end. So false teaching's always been around, but I personally believe that right before Christ comes back, and I don't have a timetable on that, there will be an amplification and an intensification of false teaching all over the place that many people are going to be led astray. Now, can Christians be led astray by false teaching? Yes. Can a Christian ultimately lose his or her salvation? Not ultimately. But they can be prone to believing falsehoods. And so you have a time of deception. Okay. So what's the order of events? So number one, you have a time of deception. Verse 5, many will be led astray. Nation will rise against nation. Verse 11, many false, false prophets will arise and lead many astray. Okay, second thing that Jesus talks about, not only is there going to be a time of deception, there's a time of tribulation. I mean, from 6 all the way down to verse 28, you see nation rising against nation, wars, famines, earthquakes, tribulation. Verse 9, they'll deliver you up to tribulation, death. You'll be hated. There'll be intense persecution. Now, again, has there always been persecution and has there always been times of struggle for Christians all throughout the years? Yes. What I think this is talking about, again, is an amplified and intensified time of persecution. Okay, so, so think about false teaching and think about persecution being ramped up majorly, like right before Jesus comes back. Again, I don't have a timetable. I don't know how long that's going to be. It just, he talks about a time of deception and a time of tribulation. Okay? Now, go down to verse 27. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. The coming. The appearing. The second coming that we talked about last week. Remember we talked about the second coming where it's loud? There's an archangel. There's a trumpet call. It's a loud, visible event. The coming of the Son of Man. All the tribes will see him. So this is the second coming. Okay? Verse 29. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heaven will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, 
and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call. And they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to another. Okay, so what's the sign? Remember the disciples said, Jesus, tell us the sign of your coming. Now he gives a lot of different signs. Wars, rumors of wars, famine, earthquake. But what's the sign? Notice what he says there. In verse 30, then will appear in heaven the sign. Okay. Moon turns dark. The sun is dark. And all the heavenly bodies go dark. So here's what I think the sign is. For lack of a better term. There is a universal blackout. A universal blackout. No sun shining, no moon shining, no stars shining. Then, after the universal blackout, what does it say? Then will appear the Son of Man like lightning flashes. So universal blackout, then the glorious appearing of Jesus in the clouds. And what does it say? He will come. He will appear in the heavens. And he will come on the clouds of heaven with great power and glory. And then you've got the angels and the trumpet call that we talked about last week. So, so what's the order? Number one, there's a time of deception, an intensified time of deception. Number two, there's an intensified time of tribulation or suffering or persecution. Then there's the coming of Christ in power and glory. And then what does verse 31 tell us? He will send out his angels with a loud trumpet and they will gather gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. The elect, the believers, will be gathered, will be caught up, will be resurrected to meet Jesus. Okay, so what's the order? Time of deception, time of tribulation, second coming, are being gathered to him. Now remember what I said last week. You can disagree with me, but what I said last week is I believe the second coming... And our being caught up in the air, whether we're alive or whether we're dead, it's a resurrection. That is a simultaneous back-to-back single event. The second coming and the resurrection, the day of the Lord, the resurrection, it's all one event. Okay, so that's Jesus' teaching. Okay, let's remember that order. What's the order? Deception, tribulation, coming, our being caught up. Okay, last week when we looked at 1 Thessalonians, did it talk about deception? No, not much. Did it talk about tribulation? Did it talk about the coming? Yes. Did it talk about our being caught up? Yes. Paul's burden last week that we looked at was not to give us an unfolding of end times events. His burden last week in 1 Thessalonians was to comfort those grieving Christians who'd lost loved ones and didn't know what was going to happen. So his was more to comfort the grieving. As we move into 2 Thessalonians, he's going to give more detailed teaching that, that mirrors a lot of what Jesus is teaching. So let's go to 2 Thessalonians. And let's pick up in chapter 2, 2 Thessalonians. And I, and I want to just camp out on verse 1 for a moment. 
We're going to read all the way through, through verse 12, but let's just, let's just look at verse 1. So, so everybody's in 2 Thessalonians now. So we were in Matthew 24, time of deception, time of tribulation, second coming, are being caught up. We can quibble about the details related to how all that works out, but those are the big major, big ticket items. Okay, look at verse 1. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus and our being gathered to him. Coming and gathering. Jesus comes and we're gathered to him. Again, I think it's a, it's a back-to-back simultaneous event. Jesus comes back, we're gathered. Now, interestingly, that word gathered is the same Greek word used back in Matthew 24, verse 31, when Jesus sends out the angels to gather his elect. So the same Greek words used. Coming, gathering. Second coming, being caught up, being resurrected. Okay? But what has to happen before that? What did Jesus say before? Deception, tribulation. All right, let's keep reading. Now, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. There were probably some in the church that like, did it come and we missed it? It must have come and we missed it. Somebody must have, and Paul's like, listen, calm down. The day of the Lord hasn't happened yet. You haven't missed it. Because if it had happened, you would have been caught up. You, you wouldn't be here anymore. So let me, let me clarify some things for you. So verse 3, let no one deceive you. It's almost like you need to have a parallel Bible. You need to have Matthew 24 open and 1 Thessalonians open side by side. Because what did Jesus say? Let no one deceive you. Many false prophets will go out. What does Paul say here in verse 3? Let no one deceive you. In any way, for that day, remember it's day, not days, not multiple comings, but one second coming, one day of the Lord, one second coming. That day will not come unless what comes first? The rebellion and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God proclaiming himself to be God. Now this is, Paul calls him the man of sin or the man of lawlessness. I believe that to be a literal person. Now when we get to Revelation, um, the beast in Revelation chapter 13, there's the beast and there's the false prophet. And there's the, the, the ancient dragon, the serpent. So there's, there's the unholy trinity in the book of Revelation, the beast, the false prophet, and the devil. The beast, I think, in the book of Revelation is symbolic of all totalitarian regimes throughout time that have tried to oppress God's people. But I do believe at the end of the age, there will be an actual literal man called the Antichrist or man of sin or the personification of the beast who will literally be a man of sin that will exalt himself as God, proclaiming to be God. Now, in order for that to happen, for there to be worldwide worship of one man, there has to be a lot of false teaching. What did I say, what did I say was the order? Deception, 
There's got to be a lot of deception. Okay, so what's the order? It's a time of deception. And then what did Jesus say second? A time of tribulation. So let's keep going through here. Do you not remember, verse, verse 5, do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he's out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing at the appearance of his coming. So what's Jesus going to do at his second coming? He's going to destroy the man of sin with the breath of his mouth. Now keep that in mind as we go to Revelation. Just keep that in mind. Now verse 9. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan. So there's some satanic activity going on, ramped up. Now, here's a question. Has Satan always been around? Ever since the beginning when he tempted Adam and Eve. Is Satan a roaring lion looking for someone to devour? Okay. Again, I think at this end time period, again, I don't know how long it is or when it is, but there's going to be an intensified delusion false teaching, intensified tribulation, and there's going to be satanic activity through this man. Deceptive satanic activity. And it's going to be so satanic and deceptive, it's going to have power and false signs and wonders. Now, just picture a very charismatic person on the world stage like David Copperfield on steroids or some, somebody that can do unexplainable, powerful things that the media is going to be like, I can't believe this. This person's got power, magical power. Okay, I'm, I'm not saying that this person's not going to have power. They're going to be able to do signs and wonders and powerful things, but it's going to be satanic. Satanically influence signs and wonders. That's why a lot of people are going to follow him because they're going to think he has the answer, the power. Especially if he promises things like, I will end world peace or I can bring ultimate healing or I can do this or that. If people are deluded in its satanic activity, he can deceive a lot of people worldwide. Okay, verse 10. With all wicked deception... For those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Okay, so what did Jesus say to begin with? I want to talk to you about my coming in, I mean, Paul, I want to talk to you about the coming of Christ and our being gathered to him. But before that happens, some things have to happen. What? A time of deception, a time of tribulation. Then third, what happens? Then after those things, the second coming and our being gathered to him. Okay? Now, just for grins, not for grins because it's actually kind of sad, go back to chapter 1, verse 7. 
because Paul also talks about the second coming of Christ, but he focuses more on the day of the Lord. Remember, the second coming is a word that's the blessed hope for Christians. Day of the Lord, which is the same day, is a day of judgment for non-believers. It's the same day. It's the same coming. The second coming is the blessed hope for Christians. The day of the Lord, same event, is a day of wrath for those that don't know Jesus. So look at verse um, 7. Um, God is going to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed, with, revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. When Jesus is revealed from heaven. So every passage we looked at, Jesus is revealed, he's coming, and where is he coming from? Heaven. It's a literal, visible, physical return. He's coming with his angels. Now, now notice the description that Paul says here. In flaming fire. Inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints, on that day, and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you who believed. So, Jesus is going to come with great power and glory, visibly, literally. We are going to be gathered to him. But in that same process, it's a day of vengeance in Christ's coming for us, but at the same time to inflict vengeance on those who have not believed the gospel. So, with that being mentioned... Let's turn to the book of Revelation where we have graphic imagery of the second coming of Christ with a lot of references to the Old Testament. Now, we're jumping into the book of Revelation at the very end. And some of you remember about maybe three or four years ago on Wednesday nights we went through the book of Revelation. I don't expect you to remember that because some of you weren't here. But let me just tell you about the book of Revelation. There are more references to the Old Testament in the book of Revelation than in any other book. So a lot of the imagery in Revelation, if we just knew our Old Testament, it would make sense. It always ties back to something that was revealed in the Old Testament, especially in the book of Exodus and in the book of Daniel. It just shows us that we're not as familiar with the Old Testament as the original readers in John's day were. When's the last time you sat down and read Daniel? We know a little bit about Exodus. So let's look at the second coming in Revelation 19, verses 11 through 12. And and I want you to think about the question. The question is this. Do we often think of Jesus coming in righteous judgment? What's the portrayal that a lot of people have of Jesus today? He's the Galilean peasant that walked around carrying a lamb, speaking with a British accent, wearing Birkenstocks, and never hurting anybody. What we're going to see here is John's graphic depiction of the second coming of Christ more in an act of vengeance and wrath upon unbelievers. Okay, so we're looking at a bunch of different passages of Scripture that all kind of talk about the same event, but they, they bring in different aspects to it. 
Okay? So in Matthew 25, verse 41, then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Eternal fire. Hell. Now, 2 Thessalonians 1, 7 through 10, we just read. I had it on the screen for us, but since we were already open to to 2 Thessalonians, I thought it'd be easier just to turn back and see it with our own eyes. So let's read this passage of Scripture. And um, I'm just going to read 11 through 16 first, and we'll talk about that. So is everybody in Revelation chapter 19, starting in verse 11? Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. On his head are many diadems. And diadem is just another word for crown. On his head are many crowns. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with the rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now, does John come out and say, this is Jesus? He doesn't say that, but we know it is Jesus. There's some clues there. Okay, so let's look at these symbolic language. So first of all, Jesus is riding on a white horse. Almost in all cultures, the white horse is a symbol of victory, conquest. Okay. Why isn't he coming on a helicopter or a jet? Well, there weren't helicopters and jets invented back when John was riding. People in his day would have known what a white horse is. Okay, so Jesus is coming in victory. Now, what is he called? He's got a name called Faithful and True. Did you know that's Jesus' name, Faithful and True? Well, I thought his name was Jesus Christ. Well, yes, but he's also Faithful and True. This signifies that Christ can be trusted and that what he's about to do in bringing judgment on unbelievers is right, true, and just. Now, this is a problem we have sometimes as Christians, and I'm going to say it this way. Don't be more compassionate than Jesus. Sometimes we get squishy about Jesus coming and judging his enemies. Let me just ask a question. Is it right and true for Jesus to judge unbelievers? Whether we like it or not, is it right and true? Okay. He is faithful and true to execute judgment. We find out earlier in Revelation 3.14... To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. He's been called the faithful and true witness, faithful and true. Jesus is faithful and he can be trusted. Now, I don't have time to do a word study, but if you go back to the Old Testament and you you look at those two words together, faithful and true or faithful and righteous or faithful and just, they almost always show up together in the Old Testament. Talking about Yahweh, God, especially go back to the Psalms. So this is a name that was often used about Yahweh, the Lord, in the Old Testament. He's faithful and true, given to Jesus. And we see that in in Psalm 96, 13. For he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in faithfulness. 
He's going to judge. He's going to be the faithful and true judge. Okay? So he's riding on a white horse. His name's faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. He's going to judge righteously. And he's going to make war. Who's he making war on? What did Paul say back in 2 Thessalonians? He's coming in flaming fire to inflict vengeance on those who disobey the, the message, who don't believe in Jesus. Now, what about his appearance? Verse 12, we see three things about Jesus' appearance. His eyes are like a flame of fire. Now, don't get out a picture and draw this, because it would be grotesque. It's symbolic language. As a matter of fact, we'll get to this in a moment, but I want to show it to you. Go back to Revelation 1.1. People ask me this question a lot. Are we supposed to take Revelation literally? And here's my answer. Yes, but Revelation tells us to read it symbolically. So I'm literally going to read it symbolically. <laughs> okay, now how do you get that? So Revelation 1.1 the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servants. He made it known. From the, that Greek word means to make known by the means of symbols, symbolic language. So right from the very first verse of the book of Revelation, we find out how to read the book of Revelation. We're to read it symbolically. So there's a lot of symbolism taken in this. So when it talks about Jesus' eyes of flaming fire, I don't know if Jesus is going to come back literally on a white horse. I don't know if he's literally going to have fire coming out of his eyes. It's a composite picture related to a lot of Old Testament images of a powerful warrior coming in judgment. Now, why flames coming out of his eyes? Nothing is hidden from Jesus. You can't hide from the penetrating gaze of Jesus who sees all things. Okay, what's on his head? Many diadems, many crowns. What's a crown represent? He's the king. Many crowns, he has unlimited sovereignty over all things. Isaiah 62, 2-3, The nations shall see your righteousness and all the kings your glory, and you shall be called by a new name that the, Lord, that the mouth of the Lord will give. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. That's a prophetic psalm about Jesus coming as king. So he's coming in conquest on a white horse. He's coming to make judgment on unbelievers. It's true and faithful judgment that he is doing justly. His eyes are like fire. You can't escape. He's got many crowns on his head. And then it's a very interesting statement there. He has a name written... We don't know where this name is written, but he has a name written that no one knows but himself. No one knows this name but himself. Only Jesus knows this name. Now, there's been some interpretations about this. What, what is this name that only Jesus knows? Some people think that it's Yahweh, that the, the name that couldn't be pronounced by the Jews for fear of sacri you know, being blaspheming God. Some people think that it's the name above all names given in Philippians 2. Some people think that it's, it's a secret name that Jesus will reveal to us that we haven't known yet until he comes back. I don't know. All I know is the Bible says he knows what the name is. 
It's a name that only he knows himself. But the importance is the name. Is there any other name under heaven by which we must be saved except for Jesus? Acts 4.12. There's no other name. Is Jesus the only way of salvation? Yes. For those that are left on the earth or who have died, when Christ comes back, will there be a second chance to believe in the name of Jesus? No. Okay? Now we get into some graphic imagery here. Verse 13, he's clothed in a robe dipped in blood. Now there's some scholarly debate as to what this robe in blood is. Is it Christ, is it symbolic of Christ's blood that was shed on the cross for our sins? The pure spotless lamb that was, that was slain? That could be it. Or a more graphic description could be, is this the blood that splattered up on his road when he made vengeance on his enemies? Like a king coming in battle in a white robe, and you're slashing with the sword, and the blood from the dead bodies are flying up on you. I don't know. I don't know. All I know is that we have an image from the Old Testament, Isaiah 63.3. I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood spattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. It's God, talking about God coming in judgment. I think it could be both. It's representative of the blood of Christ that he shed for us, but it could be a graphic image of the blood, you know, not literally of his enemies flying up on him, but it's a pretty graphic picture that his robe's dipped in blood. Now, what's his name? Well, he has an... <coughs> excuse me. He has a name that nobody knows of himself, but then he also has a name at the end of verse 13. He's, the name by which he's called is the Word of God. Who wrote the Gospel of John? It's not a trick question. John. Who wrote Revelation? John. How, does, how is Jesus referred to here? The Word of God. How does John begin his Gospel? I'm glad you asked because it's on your, your sheet. John 1, 1 through 3. In the beginning was the Word, the Logos. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. We obviously know it's Jesus now because only Jesus is called the Word of God, the living Word. And God's Word spoke the creation into existence. And God's word sustains everything. Listen to Hebrews 4, 12 through 13. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of the soul and the spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him whom we must give an account. Okay, eyes, a flaming fire, word of God, double-edged sword. Verse 14, the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. Now, there's a lot of debate. You, you look at commentaries, and you're like, okay, who, who are the, who are the, who's this army? 
Is it angels? Is it believers, saints? Is it both? I don't know. It just says the armies of heaven. I don't think we're meant to get caught up in the intricacies of this argument. But we do need to know the most important thing. It never says that we fight or angels fight, but the battle belongs to Jesus. The focus is more upon him than we coming with him. I don't care if we fight. I don't care if it's angels or us. The point is, who's in the front? (laughs) Jesus. Okay? Now, verse 15 shows us the symbol of an Old Testament warrior king. Who's the greatest Old Testament warrior king? Warrior king. King David. Jesus is the son of David. Now again, don't draw a picture of this, but verse 15. From his mouth comes a sharp, what? Sword with which to strike down the nations. Okay, out of his mouth comes a sharp sword. What did we see earlier back in 2 Thessalonians 2.8? with the man of sin. Then the lawless one will be revealed when the Lord Jesus will kill him with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. What does the sword represent? Power, vengeance, warrior. It's coming out of Jesus' mouth because he is the word of God. He's going to come and bring judgment. Okay, and then what's, what else is he going to do in verse 15? He will rule them with the rod of iron. Now, what's the, what's the iron scepter? Rod of iron, an iron scepter. Okay, this was a symbol for a king as well as a shepherd. Who was the ultimate shepherd king? King David. Okay, so a, an iron scepter you would use to ward off wolves that were coming after the sheep, but an iron scepter you would also use as, as, the, as the position of a king. Psalm 2 is what we call a messianic psalm. It prophesies about Jesus being the ultimate king. And so listen to Psalm 2, 6 through 9. As for me, this is God the Father speaking. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Now some people say, well, okay, that's, that's, that's God setting David on his, on his throne. But let's keep reading. It's not David. It's the son of David. I will tell the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. This is a messianic promise about Jesus ascending to the throne of David and one day coming back to rule as the ultimate warrior, king, shepherd, king with the rod of iron. Then we have probably the most startling picture in all of the book of Revelation Uh, Revelation 14, to me, is one of the scariest passages of Scripture. But notice what it says there at the end of verse 15. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. Now, what is a winepress? Do you guys know what a winepress was back then? It's a big vat with grapes. How do you get wine or grape juice out of that? You got to go in there and step on it and Step and crunch. And what comes out if it's red grapes? Red juice that will eventually become wine. Okay, now, when it talks about God treading the wine press of the wrath, not just 
not just God will tread, but God will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God who's almighty. God is unleashing his holy wrath upon unbelievers through Jesus at the second coming, at the day of the Lord. Revelation 14 already talked about this, but Revelation 14, 19 through 20. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the great harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. Okay, let's just stop right there. If you're not a believer in Jesus, and I'm going to say something that you're going to be offended by, okay, but we're all adults in here. This should literally scare the hell out of you, and I mean that literally. I'm not saying that like it's a bad word. I'm saying you do not want to go to hell because hell is the wrath of God. And if this Jesus comes back to unleash the wrath of God on unbelievers, and you read this, you do not want to be the recipient of the judgment. So the second coming is a day of blessed hope for the believer because Jesus is coming back to take us home. It's a day of the fury of God's wrath for the unbeliever because Jesus comes back as the warrior king to judge. And then we have the final word here. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, the king of kings and Lord of lords. Revelation 17, 14, they will make war on the lamb and the lamb will conquer them for he is the Lord of lords and king of kings and those who are with him are called the chosen and faithful. King of kings, Lord of lords. 1 Timothy 6, 15, which he will display at the proper time, he who is blessed and only sovereign, the king of kings and Lord of lords. So think of the different titles you have of Jesus just in this one passage of Scripture. He's the rider on the white horse. He's faithful and true. He's the word of God. And he's the king of kings and lord of lords. Now, why the thigh? Well, traditionally in Hebrew theology, the thigh was kind of a symbol of power and authority, royal majesty. So what you have here is a picture, really, of an Old Testament warrior king warrior shepherd king, kind of like David, but coming back from heaven in power and glory to unleash God's wrath upon the earth. Now, are we comfortable as Christians with this type of language? Is it stuff we like to talk about? When's the last time you sat down and thought about these things? What? Today. Okay, when was the last time today? So, one thing I will say to you, when you read the book of Revelation, it sobers you. You can't just sit down and read the book of Revelation and be like, oh, this is happy reading. This is like reading a psalm or reading Philippians. It reminds you of, like, the reality of the justice and wrath of God. And it's true and just. Do many Christians today, and I can't judge all Christians and all churches because I'm only in our church, but you guys may know things out there, and I don't want to get into a big, huge conversation, but just in general, 
do many do, do evangelical Christians talk enough about the justice and wrath and punishment of God? And why? Why do you think we do that? Now, I'm not saying we camp out on that every Sunday. It's a hellfire and brimstone serving, you know. I'm not saying you do that every Sunday, but why, why do you think we're afraid to talk about that in our culture? It's uncomfortable. Do we as Christians even want to hear it? Sometimes we as Christians don't want to even hear it, so why would we share it with non-Christians who are going to be ultimately offended by it? But you have to have this portrait of Jesus coming back because that's how he's presented in the scriptures now what happens when he comes back well let's keep reading starting in verse 17 then i saw an angel standing in the sun and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead come gather for the great supper of god now it's interesting because up earlier it was the great supper of god but it was the marriage supper of the lamb (laughs) where believers were enjoying intimate fellowship with Jesus. This is a different type of supper. Birds gorging themselves on the people who've died on the earth. Come gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of the mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men both free and slave, and small and great. So is there anybody left out that the birds are going to eat their flesh on? Now, I don't know if this is literal, like birds are going to be coming down eating the flesh of those that are destroyed at the second coming, or if this is just graphic language to talk. You've seen what happens. Have you driven and seen those birds circling? What do you know when the birds are circling? There's carrion. There's dead animal down there that's... They're going to come down and, and, and eat the flesh of a dead body. Uh, so this is just an image we know from, from nature. Verse 19, I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. The beast was captured and with it the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. Okay. Verse 19 probably is a reference to Armageddon. I don't think it's a literal battle at a literal place, but I think it's symbolic of all the nations of the earth marching one last time to fight God under the satanic influence of the man of lawlessness. If the man of lawlessness has set himself up as God, what's going to be his last thing he wants to do? If he, believe, if he satanically believes he's God, what's he want to do? I'm going to beat God in warfare, if that's possible. So I'm going to gather all the nations of the earth together one last time to try to make war. And I want you to notice, to make war. And literally in the original text, it says the, the war, the final war. You go back to chapter 16, 
next week when we get to chapter 20. I think it's all the same description of that one war. But here's what's so interesting. Jesus is coming to make war. They've gathered to make war. Let me ask you a question. Everybody talks about the Battle of Armageddon. All this explosion, the Battle of Armageddon. Is there any description of actual warfare in this passage? Do they even have time to fight Jesus? Do you have mention of like nuclear missiles going off and this is World War III with fighter jets and all this kind of crazy stuff? It just says, they gathered to make war and then just verse 20, the beast was captured and the false prophet. Now, the beast was captured. Again, the beast in the book of Revelation, I think, symbolically until the end, but there's always been a personification of the beast, even when John was writing this. It's a personification throughout all time of the secular political powers that are always opposed to God. So you can look throughout history and say the Roman Empire was a personification of the beast. Nazi Germany was a personification of the beast. North Korean regime any type of secular world government that tries to oppress God's people throughout history, it's a personification of the beast. But I think that because there's a man of lawlessness and this person's literally caught, that there is an end times person called the beast, called the Antichrist, called the man of lawlessness, whatever you want to call him. And then there's his counterpart, which is the false prophet. Again, symbolically, I think that throughout the ages, there is false religion that's tried to persuade worshipers to, to follow the Antichrist. I think this could be a literal person at the end times who's kind of the propaganda manager for the man of lawlessness that, that kind of disseminates the false information. But what's the point? What happens to them? They're captured, and where are they thrown? The lake of fire that burns with sulfur. The lake of fire. Now, if we go back... Let me go back in my notes because I think Jesus told us. I think there was a verse we just read. And maybe it was in Matthew. Yeah, Matthew 25, 41. What did Jesus say? Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Jesus talks about the lake of fire. The false prophet and the beast are thrown into the lake of fire. Now, we have to wait until next week when we get to Revelation 20 to see how Satan is thrown into the lake of fire. But at this point, these two. And then what else happens? The rest. Who's the rest? Verse 21. The kings of the earth, the armies, all men, both free and slave, both small and great. We have to assume that this is symbolic of the entire lost world. They're killed by judgment by Jesus who executes God's wrath with the coming of the sword out of his mouth. So let me ask you a question. At the end of Revelation chapter 19, who's left on the earth? Well, we know that everybody's destroyed except all the enemies of God are destroyed. Okay? So let's go back because we got just a few moments before the kids come in for for their choir practice. What did Jesus say was the order? Number one, you're going to have deception. 
Number two, tribulation. Number three, coming or being caught up to him. What did Paul say? Deception, tribulation, his coming, are being caught up to him. Now, part of the coming involves justice as well. So yes, the day of the Lord, remember, it's a simultaneous event. The coming of the Lord, the second coming is a blessed hope for us to be caught up. But the second coming is also the day of the Lord where what Paul says he's going to come in flaming fire to inflict vengeance. Here in Revelation, it says that Jesus comes as the warrior king to inflict God's wrath and ultimately to bring judgment on the earth to destroy all of his enemies in this battle that's not even fought. Who, who thinks they can even... I mean, it's interesting. Jesus doesn't even allow a battle to happen. You think you can assemble and fight against me? I'm not going to give you the joy and privilege of even fighting. I'm just going to capture the false prophet and the beast and throw him in the lake of fire. So, now that I've totally freaked you out and sobered you, we talked about some very deep things tonight. We were going to talk in the next half an hour, but we're going to go into Revelation 20, but it's probably a good thing because Revelation 20 is the most disputed passage in Revelation because it talks about the thousand years. And there's multiple views of the end times related to that thousand-year reign. Um, so I didn't want to confuse us. But as we have time here, what other questions or comments or observations do you guys have that we've looked at maybe the past two weeks on the second coming of Christ? Yeah, the Bible doesn't talk. That's a good question. Well, the Christians who are being caught up see this happening at the same time. There's not enough information in the Bible to talk about all the things that happen like concurrently. Um, if it's a day, the day of the Lord, if it's one day and it's one second coming and it's one resurrection and one judgment, I'm just making a conjecture here because I don't know if the Bible gives us enough information. Um, it, we're all going to be there at the same time. And now how we, how we perceive it, like as we're being caught up or we can look down and be like, oh man, they're getting all destroyed and the birds are eating their flesh. I mean, I'm not trying to be facetious, but I, I mean, I don't know. Because if our body's being changed in an instant, at that time we get our glorified body in that twinkling of an eye, we're no longer having any sin. So even if we did look down, we're not going to have regret. We're not going to be um, sorrowful. I can't explain a lot of that, Shauna, to know. There's some things the Bible doesn't fully give us the information on. And part of it is it hasn't happened yet, so we don't, we don't know. I don't know if that answers your question or if that... Yeah, believers. Well, will the believers see Jesus coming back? Yes. As, will we see him coming as the wider rider on the white horse? Yes, I think we will. We're not going to be freaked out by it. Actually, we'll be thankful he's coming back to judge. If we go back, um, if you go back to chapter 19 in Revelation, actually the multitude in heaven is praising God for bringing this judgment. Chapter 19, verse 1. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. 
For he has judged the great prostitute, that's Babylon, who corrupted the earth with her immorality, and he has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. So in heaven they're praising God for judging. Now we can't quite understand that because we're not perfect yet in heaven with glorified bodies where we have that perspective. So for now it's kind of weird. Um, but yeah, I don't know exactly what we'll see, how it all works. It's still mysterious and stuff. So I see the kids lining up and I see adult workers looking in here at me like, Pastor Sean, are you going to get done? So let's pray. Next week, we're going to spend all of our time in Revelation. Next week's our last Wednesday night before Christmas. We'll be in Revelation 20 and 21 and 22. Okay? So let me pray for us. And then you can stay in here and watch your kids, or you can go out there and take a break and decompress or debrief. Or I think I have to run sound, or I can hang around and answer questions. So let's pray. Father, thank you for this time tonight. I know it's been very sobering. It's been very um, graphic in terms um, it reminds us of just the, the, um, the point that we need to be ready for your return, Lord. And for us as believers, it's a day of joy. It's the blessed hope. But for those that are not believers, it's a day of wrath. So, Lord, help us to warn with love our friends, our family members, our coworkers, people that don't know you, that we would warn them of that day. Not, not to, to scare them for that sake, but, Lord, to re- let them know that they can have a, their sins forgiven, they can have a relationship with Christ, and that, Lord, they can go to heaven. So, Lord, help us to have a burden and urgency, especially this time of year at Christmas. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.